I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast, the show where we explore religious, political, cultural ideas that divide us in order to open our minds just a little bit. My name's Conrad. And this is Matt. And today, Matt. I've got an interview that I've done that I want to share with you. Yeah. yeah but, tell me more. But before we get there, okay. Um, have you noticed what's divided us this week? Well, many things divide us, obviously. You're but scrolling like the news and seeing... Yeah, ca- even, I think, a casual scroll through the news mm. this week, you'd pick up something about abortion. <laughs> yes. Even in Australia. Wow. As far away as we are mm-hmm. from the abortion explosion. That has happened with the Roe v. Wade, TLDR on the Roe v. Wade. What's that? Like a court ruling from the 80s or something? Yeah, I mean, I've it, it's just been more through, like, I guess, proximity to, like, on, it's been through Twitter, it's been through the news thing. So it's like, I'd love to sort of get into the depths as to why this is such a, like, why is this such an important thing? Why are people being so tribal about it? It's really interesting. Well, so. it's like... I, that, that division is an old division. For sure. The abortion division is like voting 101, at least from the outside looking in at America, it's like voting 101. Are you voting Dems or you must be pro-abortion? Are mm. you Republican? Yeah. You're anti-abortion. That seems to be the dividing line that maybe simmered down a little bit, like in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's pretty simmered down. Like it's not really a dividing electoral line. Mm-hmm. But I'll be honest, my Facebook, you know, scrolls every now and then, you know, you see your mums and your dads on Facebook. Very dangerous. But <laughs> <laughs> we all have weak moments. Yeah, you got to dodge your dodge those bullet, those boomer bullets firing <laughs> Facebook. Yeah. There's a lot firing. Yeah, you got to go like full like bullet time, the Matrix, to avoid some really toxic conversations. Boomer post engagement is through the roof. Oh, it's huge. They get way more engagement than I do when I if I post. But anyway, it it's popping up in Australia too. This abortion divide. Yeah, wow. So from the outside in, we've just had a glance on it. What's the what's the dividing line? Like there's the two positions. Obviously, there's the stereotypical pro-abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, sorry. So, yeah. Pro-life pro yeah. is the official title. <laughs> I'm for abortion. Uh, and pro-life, pro-choice. Ah, pro-choice. Yes. That's the one. Yes. They're the two. So Matt, if you're from the outside in, what's the what do you think the general position is? of the people who would look at this ruling in the court or this leaked paper that's going to come out that they're going to eventually be able to make abortion illegal in America after 30 years or something. When you put on your conservative pro-life hat, convince me. Right. What, okay. what, what do you imagine? At least we, have, we, we kind of haven't delved into it at all. Yeah, What's yeah, yeah. your shoot from the hip? Where are they coming from? Well, I guess shooting from the hip, it's not that difficult for me because... I guess I used to occupy that space oh. being a pastor. Mm, okay. Know, so that's something that, you know, for me, it was always about the moral issue uh-huh. because the sanctity of life is really what's being called in the question here. And obviously there's all this debate as to when that starts and when, when that's not life or whatever. But from 
at least a conservative Christian perspective, which is what we're seeing is the majority of the red votes or the, the right, you would say, in the US, they would consider that life is beginning straight away in the womb. And it's like, it's, that's a life. Human. And we all started there. Yeah. And obviously, there's been some really interesting, uh, pe- you know, a lot of the arguments, if you look at even some, if you've seen some of the footage of aborted fetuses, they're trying to get away from it and things like that. So it's like, is there some form of sentience that we don't understand? And so I guess if putting that hat on, it's just like, well, where, where does this lead? Does this head down some, you know, brave new world thing of like, we edit life, we, 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 we have control over life. Like this, this is a, this is a, a defenseless life form yeah. that is going to get aborted and we need to protect that. And uh, obviously the left, you would say, um, doesn't share that same value. Um, you know, the independence choice is more important. Um, and, you know, because I guess you would say from that conservative perspective, the morality trumps choice, the morality trumps the, the sanctity, you would say the sovereignty of the female body. Mm, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's saying the, the argument I've seen played out lightly from this point is abortion is murder is often the, the word that would use and so mm-hmm. obviously murder's wrong and so when you know put my lefty hat on it's like a woman gets a right to choose what she does with her body and then conservative hat back on you don't have the right to murder somebody mm-hmm. and then you get into the weeds of that line which i think is that gray area of like when does life start? When is a human a human? Yeah. And I guess if, if we've never resolved that, I think the tribes, they're always going to be warring and like yelling and, and, and putting up quip, like quips on cardboard, which is, I think I read one, which, which someone sent to me, which was, imagine uh, if you think being forced to wear a mask was bad, imagine being forced to have a baby. Yeah, well, it's like a bit catchy, right? But yeah. then, but then I put my right winger hat back on and go, yeah, but they're gonna say, you know, it's not you're not being forced. You shouldn't have had sex. You should have mm. used contraception. Blah, blah, blah. So it's like, you know, these these little tribal markers, like catchy, funny, like little memes. Uh, they're good for one side, but it just kind of tribalizes. No one's really talking to. They're all in their kind of echo chamber. So that's, I guess, the biggest one this last week. So abortion, hot topic lots of strong opinions and you friends of the show are definitely coming across them so matt and i would love to hear your recommendations on who we should talk to is there someone who's just really firing up the keyboard right maybe they're a friend i I don't need to talk to a big influencer but if they're open to chat is there a pastor who maybe is holds a position a controversial position in either direction that you think would be great on the show we can dive in, understand their perspective more. Where are they coming from? How do they form this worldview? What journey led them to this? That's what Ideas Digest is all about. Yeah, and I think it'd be great as well if anyone listening to this could, uh, if you feel comfortable in just one or two minutes, just share your abortion story. Whoa. Because I think um, a lot of people are carrying a lot of unnecessary shame. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of this is a secret sin or they just don't want anyone to know about it. But if you feel comfortable about it, it could be, pro or against we don't yeah. mind yeah um sharing that story Could be anonymous anonymous um yeah we can read it out um i don't know how good i am with voice modulators but. <laughs> yeah so let us know we would love to hear that as I said, we'll treat it very sensitively but we 
we believe these are stories that need to be told. There is so mm. much emotion around this, yep. this thing. So wherever you stand, I think it's important that your voice is heard. Mm. So that's, I guess, the biggest one this last week that I've, I've come across. But there's another one dividing Australia right now. Yeah. Right now, Matt. Tell me. You know what it is. Tell me. It's the election, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it's, our, it's our election. Yeah. So I don't know. What's the... I mean, there's a lot of divides there. You've got conservative prime minister. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, it's universal. It's similar to the, if any US listener. You'd say um, there's the left and the right. Um, you know, liberal and um, conservative is different in Australia. That's the only thing. But yeah, yeah, basically, the TLDR is that in the sense you'd have like left-leaning policies, which are socialistic, and then right-leaning policies, which are, um, you know, less government intervention, um, you know, more of a free market. That's the stories told, isn't there? It's, yes. uh, the stories play out the same in America, Australia, but obviously yes. it's always very different. So if you're in Australia, you got a decision to yeah, make. Yeah, the left likes to spend, the right likes to save money and, you know, create jobs. Great storytelling, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, if, yeah, if you're in Australia, that's, what, that's what's dividing everybody right now. But, Matt, after we move on from the divisive headlines today, I spoke to somebody who you may or may not know. Do you know a guy called Brian McLaren. I've definitely um, heard of him. Like, I don't think I've read any of his books, but I've Shoot definitely... Shoot from the hip judgments, go. I dropped the name. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that super familiar with his, his stuff, so I'd be very curious like to, to yeah. dive into it. But he's somewhat on the left left hand of the spectrum within Christianity. Yeah. Um, trying to um, catch the falling knife, which is the deconstruction catch the falling knife yes all right yes of the millennials departing the church and giving them a story or a narrative or a perspective Mm. on why they should stay and recapture the story of jesus how close am i oh interesting yeah okay yeah i can i can see that like the judgments of some people who may be familiar with him who aren't a fan because i think there'd be people who really like his stuff Mm -hmm. reframing the christian journey for those who have deconstructed from I guess conservative Christianity, but want to hang on to the story a little bit. He's really good for that. If you're unfamiliar, he'd be some progressive lefty, puts politics above the Bible. Right. Um, well, I judged him. I spoke to him before. I've had him on the show before. Interesting. And I did throw some judgments at him because you Google him mm. and he's got, he's got quite the haters. Yeah, interesting. Because he actually doesn't shy away from politics. Which is why what, I brought Can you explain back. that? Like he doesn't shy away from politics. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So you know how religion, like, Think of your church upbringing. Yeah. How many sermons did you hear that spoke about climate change, uh, social welfare, like any kind of political hot button issue that was happening at the time? No. Yeah, you would say none. Like zero. Yeah. Like my whole life, I've never heard someone get up and talk about anything that remotely resembled a current policy decision that our government's faced. Yeah. So when I say he doesn't shy away from political... He's very much, you know, when he's talking about what Jesus would do, he very much interweaves it within, you know, social justice, uh, you know, how black people being treated because he's American. Mm. So Black Lives Matter, he's, you know, obviously very on board with that movement. Um, Climate change, he's obviously very pro helping the environment, um, not a climate denier like many Christians might be. Uh, So he, he, and he openly kind of talks about it saying we as a church need to, stand up and look after people on welfare so it's listening to him you'd very much know where he votes right i would i would judge him left stereotype him 
I'd put good money, Matt, that he he would vote for someone like Bernie Sanders. Interesting. And I think he'd be pretty open about it too. Interesting. I don't know. I didn't I ask him. I can totally understand why that would um, irritate the right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Christian. And even if we link it back to what we spoke about at the start with abortion, like it's just like, how can you vote for the left when they can, they're open to committing murder? Yeah. Yeah. And then you would, if you run through the abortion statistics in the US, we're talking from the rights perspective. Yeah. Like that's like genocidal levels. Yeah. Of yeah. Genocide's happening every year. Yeah. So, so that's what they're trying to stop, I suppose, when they're like, when the court makes this decision. It, like, if policy magically does what they want it to do, mm-hmm. that's what they're hoping to do. Yeah. So, yeah, Brian McLaren would probably fall on the pro choice line mm. of, of voting. And you'll probably, and probably, I'd guess, from what I'm putting together now, like my little FBI little sort of, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like board. String strings pins. connections and i'm like <laughs> okay if i go through how he approaches scripture i'm guessing it's me- more metaphorical than it is literal yeah, yeah 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 right very very much so very much so well it's a slippery slope to destruction brian <laughs> it's yeah so people would judge you get back on the fundamentalist train some might call him heretic this. yes heretic you google him heretic big time wow so he's now i think last i googled and last I spoke was part of the Center for Action and Contemplation where Richard Raw is. Whoa. So I don't know if he's there all the time or he's an affiliate and he kind of makes some content. So contemplative them. prayer, you're saying basically when you get into alpha states and demons influence you? That is what a conservative Christian might. Yeah, it takes one to know yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. So my conversation with him, spoke to him, really interesting convo. I wanted to angle towards politics because of the Australian election coming up and going, okay, how do we, like, obviously politics is a discussion everyone avoids. No one wants to talk about it and churches massively. So here's a guy who says, I'm a Christian and I'm not going to drop that label. I like Jesus. I'm not going to leave that behind. But politically, we should be moving in this progressive direction. We should be helping climate change, all those sorts of things. Mm. And we should be talking about how we as people, uh, play a role in shaping society. And that's, I guess, why politics is linked in with that. And I listened to his podcast that he has, and he does a little short series every now and then. So it's not, he's not a prolific podcaster, but he does one called, and he mentions it when I chat to him, Learning How to See. Learning How to See. Yeah. And that series essentially goes through learning how to see our biases. And he weaves mm. this religious Christian like using biblical text, prayer, and things like that, in with learning how to see our biases. So he categorizes a lot of biases and he defines them as blind spots. So a, a blind spot is obviously confirmation bias. We're more likely to believe something that we already believe. Yeah. And if you confirm it, I'm going to ignore the evidence. I might not even see the evidence that makes me wrong. Cash bias, obvious one. Yeah. You're more likely to support a position when you're financial benefit can come from it yeah um have you heard of the ikea effect no so they've named it after you uh, attach more to things that you build ah so like obviously Some so cost you have bias. A, oh it'd be more it's more that you literally you know you you swear and you carry on and you construct this thing and it's even a bit wobbly but you have a bias that you have an emotional connection to that cupboard you build mm. because you spent time in building it so mm. they're actually called the ikea effect yeah, so take the piece of furniture away and put an idea that you've built or cultivated or religion exactly. for so long, 
you're not easily going to let that go. No. So what's interesting in his podcast, he goes through, he lists them out, and then he, he runs through prayers and stuff. So he's using religion as this mirror to see our own blind spots. So even, even if you're not Christian, friend of the show, you're listening and you're not Christian, you might be intrigued by this approach of how, Get saved, by the way. how Christianity might be used. He actually doesn't, I don't know. That's not, Ooh. that's not it. Yeah. He's, Penal substitutionary atonement. Not in there. Jeez. Yeah. This guy's a true heretic. He is. He's my type of guy. <laughs> <laughs> he is. So let's take a listen, friends of the show, and tell me what you think. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the podcast where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to do a couple of things, to challenge our opinions, and then maybe our minds might open just a little bit wider. It's always a challenging practice. My name's Conrad, and if you're a new friend of the show, welcome. Old friends, welcome back. And speaking of old friends of the show, Brian McLaren, thanks for joining us for another episode, Brian. Hey, great to be with, great to be with you. I'm old and I'm a friend, so I guess that goes together. <laughs> I, I I thought I was like, if I put old in there, is he going to pick up and be like, no, no, not old. Like, no, like, that's great. Nice, that's great. Familiar. Familiar. That's the word. There you go. Um, it's all good. Both welcome good. back. Um, seasoned and familiar friend of the show, Brian. Hey, it's really good to have good. you here. Um, now, last time people might remember Brian McLaren. I know Brian McLaren. Last time we had you on the show, we actually judged you like, last time we had some assumptions about you we might have googled or heard but we put them to you and got them off our chest this time you know familiar and seasoned friends of the show no need we've kind of if you want to go back and listen to us judging brian and what we might have thought about him you can go back to an episode called choose doubt choose either doubt or authoritarianism um so brian i feel like it's only fair you being back on the show would you like to judge or get some assumptions off your chest about about me maybe since the last episode or maybe ones that you initially thought I'm open to it oh my gosh well listen I wish I could offer you something but I just remember we had a great conversation and I remember and and in my opinion um, Conrad anybody who is trying to help people talk about their differences and actually try to understand each other a little better uh, I my only judgments are good so <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just happy to be in your company you, you've, you've passed the test, though. It's very nice. We can continue from here. I don't know how how um, resilient I am to to negative feedback. Now I can I can take a little bit of it sometimes. Last time we caught up, we talked a little bit about the connection of religion and politics, and we discussed a bit of authoritarianism. You can go back and listen to that. But I wanted to get Brian back to talk about probably those two things again, and some of the recent uh, podcasts you've been doing. Uh, your podcast entitled learning how to see you're exploring like biases but also you don't shy away from this um idea of politics and religion and almost the unavoidability of politics i'm wondering if i suppose you could give people a little bit of a background in in what you do and what yeah. maybe keeps leading you back to this conversation that i don't see too many religious people having about politics yeah yeah, sure. So uh, a quick uh, thumbnail biography. I, I grew up, you know, here in the United States and I grew up in what you back in those days would have been called a fundamentalist uh, a Christian family. But back when I was born in the, in the 1950s and and in those days, fundamentalists would have said that they were not political. Um, they were spiritual. They focused on 
the soul and they focused on your eternal destiny and your political you know uh, involvement they weren't weren't really interested in and i think that i, I think that was I think that was a bit self-deceptive on their part. Uh, you know, the, the great and recently late Desmond Tutu would say, and, and of course, many others have said this in their own way, that if you're silent in the presence of injustice, then you're complicit with the oppressor. And so, uh, you know, I was born in 1956. That was the year in my country of what's called the Montgomery uh, bus boycott. And that's when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to the fore. So my, the first... 10 years of my life were filled with the issue of civil rights in the United States. My religious community, totally silent. We'd never say anything about it. Um, when I was a little older, I found out that my church was a segregationist church, meaning if a person of color came to the church, some very nice white men in suits and ties would very politely tell them where the nearest church was that where they'd feel more comfortable and be more welcome. So, um, uh, that was, you know, I'm old enough that that's part of my childhood. And my parents were considered radicals, first, because we had a lot of people of different races at our dinner table and would bring them to church with us and not uh, and sort of shield them from being sent somewhere else. So um, then I became very I, I was pretty sure I was going to leave Christian faith as a teenager. I had a very dramatic spiritual experience and kind of conversion experience uh, in, in, as a teenager and was part of what was called the Jesus movement back in the 60s and 70s, or back in the 70s, I should say, and ended up, uh, I was a college English teacher, became a pastor. I was a pastor for 24 years and um, for the last, I guess, 17 years have been uh, a uh, living as a writer. And that's enabled me to speak and engage with a lot of causes that I care about. And I guess there's so much we could say about this, uh, Conrad, but uh, I guess a way to say it is at the core of my faith is a call to love my neighbor as I love myself. And a call to love my neighbor as I love myself means I have to be concerned not only about my own well-being, but about the, the, well-beings of, the well-being of my neighbors. And that's another word for politics. Politics is either me trying to get my own benefit at the expense of my neighbors, <laughs> or it's me trying to use my power for the well-being of my neighbors. It, it sounds like the definition, I'm glad you, that's the question I would have asked, like how are you defining politics? And it sounds like this picture of politics that you're painting is this pervasive idea that's inescapable. It's always around us. It's just whether we can kind of see it or not. And it's merely the practice of engaging with our neighbor that's that seems to be how you're defining politics and if you define it that broadly as you know local politics my immediate literal neighbor or my yes. neighbor in my city in my community it sounds like something that is essentially inescapable and it makes you wonder why and how a religion like the christianity you grew up in could say by that operating definition, oh, you know, we sidestep, we sidestep politics. Because if I flash back to my uh, Christian childhood, I don't, I don't think I ever heard a sermon, probably similar to you, about anything to do with any current social challenge happening in in the day. Like we could feed, you know, we'll talk about feeding feeding the homeless literally, literally with soup, because I guess Jesus did that, yes. but there was zero discussion on. 
What about gathering together and petitioning local members to get accessible, affordable housing for the very people that we're hoping to yes. serve? It would seem to be a, a conversation that, that wasn't there. So I, I want to put two titles to you um, as, yeah. as you've have we, have we've outlined this. And I want, I want you to pick which one might be closest to where we get. Our titles mislead. So the first title I came up with was Why Religion Sucks at Politics. And then the other title on the opposite side of the coin was why politics needs religion. Which one do you <laughs> think is, is a, is a more helpful summary of, of where we're headed? Uh, I think I'd go with the first one. Why uh, religion it, sucks at politics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let me say uh, first, I, I'm answering this very much in my American context. Then I've been to Australia several times and, I, I'm somewhat familiar with, you know, your realities there, but uh, uh, some of what I'm going to say about my context, may the opposite may be true um, in your context. But, you know, uh, as, as you all know, on our side of, uh, of, the, uh, of the international dateline and on our side of the Pacific Ocean, where I live, uh, religion has had a very powerful role in politics. And I think religion has made politics much worse. Uh, in other words, I think a lot of our problems, political problems, have gotten worse in the last few years because of the way that religious people have fused with uh, fused their interests with one political party. Um, and I, I could give you maybe two quick examples, um, Conrad. One would be that... I grew up in a hellfire and brimstone context, and we divided the world into the children of God and the children of the devil, the children of light and the children of darkness, Christian, non-Christian, saved, unsaved, spirit-filled, not spirit-filled. Everything for us was about dividing people. And we were always the good people, and they were always the bad people. And uh, that us-them, good-evil dualism or dichotomy, I think has really energized uh, politics in many places in recent years. It's not that we have, we're all good people, we're all neighbors, we're all citizens, and we have some different political philosophies. But now it's set up as this is a battle and God is on one side and the devil is on the other side. And this is, uh, you know, everything's at stake. Uh, and uh, what was so interesting and, and heartbreaking for me as, as a Christian here in the United States, is watching all of these people, Catholic and Protestant, but primarily white uh, Christians here, uh, line up in that way behind Donald Trump so that anyone who opposed Donald Trump was evil and uh, of the devil. So that's one dimension, this dividing the world into uh, us, uh, us and them uh, in and out and always putting an absolute moral judgment uh, on it. Um, another way that I think uh, politics has uh, been hurt by religion is that uh, what 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 our what the Christian religion has done in many parts of the world is they've reduced all of Christian social teaching uh, to the issue of abortion, and so all decisions are made based on whether a politician is pr uh, uh, is for. Uh, access to abortion or is against access to abortion. And, me, and as a result, 
really important things get swept away. For example, concern when Australia was on fire last year and, and over the last years, and where many parts of the world have been su- suffering the early uh, and devastating effects of climate change. Um, boy, you can get a lot of Christians really excited about abortion, but you uh, about fighting abortion, you cannot get them nearly as excited about addressing climate change or economic inequality. You mentioned um, feeding, you know, feeding people at a soup kitchen. Uh, the great Catholic uh, activist Dorothy Day used to say, and she, I think, was quoting uh, Adam uh, uh, Carrera, but uh, she used to say, when I, I'm paraphrasing, but when I give soup to the hungry, they call me a saint. But when I ask why our economic system creates so many hungry people, they call me a communist. You know, that that's a paraphrase, but it's, and, mm. and uh, so th- those would be some, some areas where I, I see us doing it wrong. I think we could do it way, way better. Right. And people in different times and different places have done it way better. But right now, we're struggling. It it sounds like what I'm hearing in the short answer to uh, why religion sucks at politics. I'm hearing that it it allows or increases the amount of tribal identity markers that yes. people can gather around. So as I hear you talk, you know, uh, j- jokingly in the in our first meeting, I was judging you, but what I've noticed is that people mention or signal what seem to be these tribal markers, religion, as you seem to be pointing it out, it has, has, paints this picture of an us versus them. It's like the chosen and the not chosen. That would be what you're describing. And then there's tribal markers. So you've mentioned Trump and abortion and then climate and people go, okay, Brian is this side of this tribal marker. Then the, then the categorization comes and the division and they go, you're a communist lefty, Oh, I know yes. where Brian sits now. And now I don't have to kind of listen to you anymore. I can, yes. I can write you off. And religion, and if, if probably like the one you're probably referring to, which is not as popular in Australia, but there's elements of it like evangelical yes. Christianity, which is the one that seemed to be lining up behind Trump. That's what you're saying has, has supercharged these tribal markers, made them really clearly defined. And driven division, picked up more issues to then drive the knife of division between everyone. Is that a fair assessment of what you're saying about religion and politics? That's exactly, uh, that's perfectly fair. And then I would add that what religion does, you know, politicians divide people all the time. Uh, Sometimes politicians unite people, but, um, but, you know, certain kinds of politicians love to divide people, but when they can bring God in on their side, <laughs> you know, that's like coming in with a, the biggest weapon there is. And uh, so that religion in that way supercharges the power of unscrupulous politicians to very literally demonize their opponents, to make their opponents seem inherently evil and devilish. And, and when that happens, it makes it easier. In fact, you can see this taken to an extreme it makes it inevitable that people will start killing people. Uh, you know, this is how we create religious and political violence. We demonize the other, reduce the humanity of the other, so that we are legitimate. It's legitimate for us to 
first take the dignity of the other, then take the civil rights of the other, and finally take the freedom and then the life of the other. Mm. So you mentioned growing up as you were in a hypercharged political, like these iconic political movement moments you, you remember growing up and seeing. And I suppose perhaps someone growing up now might be able to see if you're, I'm just thinking if you're a kid growing up right now, you're seeing, you've seen already two economic crashes, which, you know, the generation was 30 years in Australia before we had one. You've seen, you know, now hypercharged lockdown stuff. You're seeing the climate inaction. You're seeing a a more and more, probably very iconic when we look back on it, political moments. But it seems to me like a lot of other people, perhaps of your age or, Uh, Growing up now, you mentioned you were looking around, seeing this, then seeing this incongruency in the religious structure you were attending. What, why was it that you could see, and I'm assuming over time you've seen more and more and more and more to make this probably heavy-handed critique of of the Christian, Western Christian religion, um, or the American Christian religion, which I think the Australian would sit 70 to 80% within that. Um, and you've seen more and more, what, what is it that enables us to see these things or not Mm. see these things? How is it that someone can sit in a church week on week? And if the pastor mentions economic inequality or mentions, maybe we should look after the environment, he'll never get more angry letters than when he talks about that. What's this? It seems to be something to do with this seeing ability to see what's around us or not see what's around us. Yes, yes. Well, this certainly relates to, you know, the topic of uh, the the podcast you mentioned, Learning How to See, where we, uh, in the first two seasons, looked at biases. I tried to create a comprehensive list, and my list was 13. um, And, you know, people could add others to the list. But it just seems to me there, there are these very predictable patterns of glitches in our thinking where we think we're rational, but we can't all be rational. Otherwise we'd all agree. Right. So, um, so we have to all look at our thinking and it seems to me there are these glitches in our reasoning. Let's call them biases that are really common. And psychologists can tell us there are all kinds of reasons why these glitches are so common. Um, but one of them is called confirmation bias. And confirmation bias says that what I think already is what's easiest for me to keep thinking. And if you come and contradict something that I think, it takes a lot of energy for me, and emotional energy and time, and I might need to go read a book. And, I'm, and, and then, so, so everything inside of me says, let's just stick with, that, with what I already think. And uh, so a group that is used to hearing things a certain way, uh, they, uh, you know, it, it's, it's disruptive to have to rethink anything. Then add to that another one of the very common biases I called community bias. And this says that if there is a way that your community thinks and you were to change your way of thinking in such a way that it would get you moved you would lose status in your community or you would even be kicked out of your community, then it's very, very hard for you to think that new thought that could put you in social trouble. Again, we can see how how that would happen. Well, you put confirmation bias and community bias together and you can see why groups develop a certain 
uh, a certain groove or a certain track, or we might even say a certain rut. And everybody in the group thinks that way. And if anyone begins to depart, then they're pushed out of the group. I'll add one more. Uh, it's called cash bias. <laughs> and, and this bias says that if I make my way of living, if, if my economic livelihood is connected to a certain way of thinking, it's almost impossible for me to be open to a way of thinking that would cost me money or force me to change my economics. And uh, oh my goodness, if this is one of the most powerful, because if we start to consider the power that economic assumptions have uh, over religion, and my per- one of the reasons I, I, I'm a committed Christian and I, and I believe in the power of religion for good, I see its power for evil, but I, I believe in its power for good, is we need something that is willing to stand up and say, money is not the measure of all value. And there are higher callings. And that's, to me, the proper job of religion. And this maybe circles around to your first question, because if religion becomes overly tied to money, um, and, and we can easily see how that would be, then it becomes almost impossible for religion to say anything about injustice, because injustice is almost always related to some people making money at the expense of others. It sounds like as you're painting this picture of the of bias that you're defining as like uh, we're running a personal software and then there's a, a glitch yes. that occurs that stops us from seeing something or we're, we've picked up this group software, this group way of thinking that then if we are to do something, we might be removed from that group. If I'm to mention this topic within this group, ah, that's going to be an uncomfortable situation. I want to avoid that, therefore avoid this topic. I think there's these two minds of when people are listening to what you're saying, and I think you keep occupying these two spaces, which I think is an interesting challenge for people as they're listening, is going, you're you're not pulling any punches when it comes to the religion you've grown up in and the religion and cultural religion you exist in. But then at the same time, you believe in its, 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 its force for good at that same time. And so you're flicking between these two, these two critiques, hope and then heavy-handed critique. Yeah. What, what is it then that culturally, like, is it just religion? So you've come down heavy on religion and probably even a little bit heavy, like, on your culture. What, what is it culturally that blocks us from seeing these things? Or is it only the religious who are in this tribe? So some people listening Mm -hmm. might be like, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't have this tribal group think I'm I'm out of this. Is it, is it just cult? Is it just religious or is there cultural factors or something else that pull us into this divisive group think? What a great, what a great question. So here's my opinion on that, uh, Conrad. Uh, It'd be interesting if, if we could get empirical data and look at people who are religious and people who are non-religious and see if either group has more self-awareness about their biases and has more self-critical thinking. My personal belief is that these are not Christian problems. They're not religious problems. They're not capitalist problems. They're not socialist problems. These are human problems. And they relate to our evolution as as herd or tribal creatures. You know, we, we, we live in herds the way, you know, 
horses run in herds or wolves run in packs or fish go in schools. We are herd creatures. And we, our brains, I think, have evolved uh, for, to, to help us survive in those groups. And uh, so I think these are human problems. I think they're human problems. Here's where we get in trouble, though. Um, if our religion tells us that, that we don't have to think for ourselves, we just have to believe with the preacher or the priest or the pope uh, or the imam or the uh, ra- chief rabbi or whoever it is tells us, then in a certain sense, we're basically turning off our critical thinking when it comes to confirmation bias. We're saying, oh, no, and, and community bias. Our group already knows what's right. I already think that way. I never have a need to have a second thought again. So religion can give people a shortcut to that. So can politics. Um, I I have a friend who is a totally non-religious person. He's a a famous economist. And we were talking one time and he said to me, Brian, you think religious fundamentalists are bad. Wait until you meet economic fundamentalists. (laughs) And what he was saying is that that same kind of rigid, orthodoxy, you know, dogmatic thinking happens in, in among economists. They belong to a school of economics. And anyone who's not part of that school is the enemy. When you expand that definition of religion to this a doctrine or a set of agreed upon presuppositions or picture of the universe, like economists might sit around and go, this is the mechanism by which society operates. And that is my doctrine, so to speak. It seems to be like religions and groups offer certain blockages or accelerate or um, increase certain glitches that might block us from seeing certain things. So, I suppose then the next question is if, if I'm to package it, sounds like you're saying we all belong to groups, whether that be religious or not. These groups add to our inability to see certain things that may be occurring and we'll call these biases. How, and everyone would agree with that. Everyone, you never hear nothing more, Brian, than nah, he's biased. CNN biased, Fox News biased. Oh, that economist said this. He's just biased. It's yes. it's this it's this word kind of thrown around. Everyone knows everyone else is biased. <laughs> exactly. And we'll we may theoretically accept Brian. I'll theoretically accept I am also biased. Yes. But don't try and tell me that it's confirmation yes. bias when I have a different opinion to you. Yes. How? What? Are the, what is the foundation? to bring me or, or what was your journey or what brings people to the, the foundation of being able to self-diagnose my illness? I can theoretically yes. do it. Yeah, but you know, I'd, I've got biases, Brian, but I think this. How do yes. I maybe do the serious work of unpicking these biases so they don't impact me, impact me as much? Because I can identify yes. them in others really easily. Yes. How do I turn it inward to myself? Yes. What a, what a, uh, another really important question. So I think, l- let me give a general answer and then maybe a couple of specific examples. But the, the general answer, I think, is, is not as much intellectual as it's, it's a matter of morality or we might call it a matter of character, meaning this. 
the, the word for the word for a willingness to be to admit that I'm wrong is humility. And mm. and so there's a certain sense that when we lose humility, um, then we're we're not going to be willing to admit we're wrong. And, and and if we cultivate humility, it seems to me that becomes it, it you know it becomes an escape route from bias. I, I, I think biases will always be our automatic first response. I think it has to do with the way our, our software works. But I think humility will be our sort of backstop. Our, our humility will be our second thought to say, you know, maybe I should listen. Maybe he has something to say to me here. Maybe I'm wrong. Now, that's a virtue. And it's a virtue that virtually that every religion I'm aware of celebrates the value of, of humility. And I think, by the way, that's part of what my economics friend was trying to say to me. He was saying, at least in religion, you have the virtue of humi- humility, he said, but we, we economists think we know everything <laughs> and we think we understand everything. So humility would be the general response to that. And then the question is, how do we cultivate humility? And, and one of the things I think we desperately need to cultivate humi- humility is models. We need people we respect who model humility. And I think for many of us, we, we may just have a huge shortage of people we respect in our circle of you know, connection, uh, people who model that. It, it's, and this is where societies can become more and more fragmented because there are fewer and fewer people who model humility. More and more people are they're recruited to the cult of arrogance. <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, so that's one thing I'd say. On a more practical level, if I were to say what has broken through in my life, uh, I would, I'll just tell you a quick story. I'm, I'm not proud of this at all. I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. It's just part of my life. But part of my upbringing w- was that we Christians are right and we're God's people and Muslims are the enemy. They believe false doctrines. They've been misled. And so I was given this sort of, this set of assumptions about Muslims uh, from my early childhood. I knew virtually nothing about Islam. It's just that I knew we Christians were right and they're sort of our main competitor in the market of world religions. And so I, I had suspicion of Muslims. My wife and I got married. We moved into a little apartment. And it just so happened that above us was a Muslim woman and her little boy, uh, Armin. And Armin and I became pals. It's a long and funny story how we became pals. But um, my, my newlywed wife and I learned that we had to lock our door because Armin would just come in anytime because he felt so at home at our apartment. Um, and we became friends with Parveen. And this was long before September 11th. This was during something called the, well, it was during the Iranian revolution. And uh, there was a lot of tension between the U.S. and Iran. And so there was all this anti-Iranian sentiment. And, uh, and our, our neighbor, uh, when we became friends, and I guess we invited her over for dinner, her and her son over for dinner, she starts telling all of her Iranian friends, I met some Americans who like Iranians. And Pretty soon we were getting invited to Iranian parties. Well, all of the prejudice that I'd been taught about Muslims, and in this case it was an Iranian Muslim, all the prejudice I'd been taught 
now begins to evaporate as I actually encounter real people. Um, and mm. I, I, so those encounters often are really what make the difference. And, and uh, yeah, and for, you know, for Christian folk like myself, there is example after example of this in the Bible of where a stranger comes and you have this great revelation or insight through an encounter with an outsider or a stranger. So these tribes that we're in separate us from others, whether they're cultural tribes or religious tribes. And then that separation through that example leads to ignorance of someone else. And then we're primed for someone to lay assumptions about whatever group of people, us versus them. And if I, in my Christian worldview, am primed to be, I am the remnant you are yes. the outsider if i'm kind of already got that that preconditioning then yes. when a politician says it's these people that are taking and making things not fair i guess i go you know what i don't know them my ignorance allows for that breeding ground of this prejudice that i'm That's not it. sure and it sounds like this antidote which you're kind of pulling this to like these virtues that are cultured in religion at its best, one of being humility. Humility yes. at that might be what you're, so, you're saying is the escape route out of that track that we're always going to be in. But then I, at some point when some politician primes me to say these people are, you know, bad people and they're coming to get your stuff, I might go, oh, I don't know these people. And that's like the virtue of humility and practicality yes. going, I don't know these people. I actually have no experience with them or I haven't done my research on Islam. I actually haven't even read a book or... So that seems to be the escape route route out of there. What is it that builds these personal virtues? Like if we yeah. don't have these role models that you're talking about, if we have... Because I'm, I'm thinking of... I'm putting both culture and religion next to each other. And in you know America, it's probably more closely entwined than in a, in, a, in Australia. If I look at them next to each other, and I'm looking for role models that exemplify virtues, well, I don't see it in the greed is good, like culture of money yeah. and recruiting capital at all costs. Yeah. I don't see it in modern celebrity, which may be the role model of the time. And then I go, well, in religion, I don't know if I see it in a lot of the mega church structures. Of yeah. it, it seems to be there's a guy at the center and he's he's the guy and oh how great is that guy? It seems to be a similar model. So we, in the absence of a lot of role models, how do we cultivate yeah. these virtues? How do we grow these yeah. virtues? Where do they come from? In what seems to be a religious context and a cultural context that doesn't idolize the very virtues that you're talking about bring us together. Yes, yes. You know, it, it seems to me that the first thing that happens is someone hears us have a conversation like this and they say, wow, humility. I never thought of it in that way. Um, that might be something I need. And when we start to feel a need for something, you know, there's a saying in Buddhism that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And it may be that there are people around us who are modeling that kind of humility, but we never notice it. Humility doesn't put up billboards and say, look at me, I'm humble, right? So if humility is an important virtue, we become ready for it, and then we might start to notice it. But I'll tell you, it comes from some unlikely places. Um, 
I mean, not unlikely in another way, but to some people, this would seem unlikely. I'll tell you one of the places I think it comes. I think it comes in science. Uh, you know, one of the geniuses of the scientific method, it, you could think of the scientific community at its best. Look, we, we know there are egotistical, arrogant jerks who are scientists, just like there are who are religious people. But you look at the core of science and it says this. We've been wrong a lot in the past, and we could be wrong right now. So for that reason, we take our assumptions and we look for ways to test them. We want to find if, if our assumptions, or let's not even call it an assumption, let's call it a hypothesis, something we're not sure of. We say, what are ways we could test it and find out if it's really true? That's the humility to say, I know how dangerous confirmation bias is. And so I've got this thing called the scientific method that gives me an ability to challenge my own preconceptions and to challenge my own assumptions and test them, right? So in, in the, if you're part of a good scientific community, you're part of a community that upholds this virtue of humility in a certain context in life. Now, that same scientist might go home and display arrogance toward her husband or uh, wife or children, right? There, there could be, we, we may compartmentalize these virtues. And that to me is where a healthy kind of spiritual practice really comes in. It, 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 it's, a, it, it's where you say, I'm part of a community and this virtue of humility is one of the virtues that we really lift up. And we have ways that we help ourselves keep checking in on this. I'll give you a, just a, a, one example. My daughter is a a super gifted, uh, one of my daughters is a super gifted yoga teacher, yoga instructor. And, uh, and I've taken many classes uh, with her. And anyone who does yoga experiences humiliation. <laughs> you know, you try to do something and you fall over. You try to do something and you just get too tired. You, you look uh, about as graceful as a, you know, wounded grasshopper or something. So you, you, you have humility. And a good yoga instructor makes the humility be part of the practice. Like, it's okay. Be gentle with yourself. We don't judge each other. We don't judge ourselves. We have the humility to say we're just beginners and it takes time to learn these things. So once again, that virtue of humility gets reinforced in a community. And look, I, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to flatter you, Conrad, but I'm going to guess that this is one of the things that attracts people to your podcast. They think I'm part of a community here where I listen to new ideas and that challenges some of my existing thinking. And that's what I wouldn't be surprised that if that's why a lot of people come back. Ah, the slow fade headbutt into the paywall. Oh, sorry about that. If you want to listen to that episode in full, you can head to ideasdigest.org, sign up to become a super friend of the show. I actually push a little bit harder with Brian. He's a very nice, he's a very nice man. And I ask him some questions about is because he seems like pretty politically left and progressive. And so I ask him some questions about has the left and himself become, you know, this cancel culture, new purity code. And we also explore what are the solutions to seeing and then undoing some of our biases and glitches. And Matt and I, now we're going to continue and start talking about what Matt honestly thought. He comes mm. from a conservative. Is he the heretic I really will like? 
Yes. This is going to trigger me. What's, yeah. Has he? You know what I'm like? (laughs) It can go either way sometimes. (laughs) There's some deep triggers in in both of us. Yeah, okay. You come across. But yeah, well, if you stick around, become a super fan of the show, you'll hear Matt and I break it down. So thanks for tuning in to another episode of Ideas Digest. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at ideasdigest at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Ideas Digest. Send us an audio. And yeah, send us an audio. And if something you notice is dividing people this week, send it through. Thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you all in the next episode.